for joining us once again for a new episode of Don't Open This Podcast. I am your co-host, Mike, joined by my amazing and wonderful co-host, Tim. So we are back to talk about some underappreciated, maybe unknown to some people. But definitely worthwhile movies. We kind of put them under the banner of unsung horror. Because more people should sing about them. So we're going to we're gonna get into this. I think we've got six movies, all very, very different subgenres. They all have quite a bit to offer. So we're going to just get going, I think, and, and get the show on the road, right? Yeah. So what do you want to talk about first, man? So I think first, we're going to get into aquatic horror, uh, which I don't think we've gotten, <laughs> unless you got Amsterdam from Unsung One. <laughs> Um, but we're going to get into some aquatic horror in a, a 2020 movie that also actually just kicks right into action from the get-go. It's William Eubanks' Underwater. When you're underwater for months at a time, some things are just out of your control. We've got to go for the escape pods. How would we get there? We walk We're just going to walk with insufficient oxygen across the bottom of the ocean. Oh my god. Underwater. Rated PG-13. Sweet, sweet underwater. There are people that love underwater disaster movies, and there's people that don't care. I am someone that loves underwater disaster movies. It takes me back to a very uh, impressionable, innocent time in my youth. Tim, I think we grew up probably on some of the same Deep Star 6 it was it was an underwater disaster movie? Do you count Leviathan? Of course. I mean, that's <laughs> that's one of the crown jewels. I think. I mean, there was the, the Poseidon Adventure, but that's oh, well, yeah. there, there's nothing supernatural in that. But yeah, supernatural underwater disaster movies. I think you have to have some cool set design for your ship. You have to have a ragtag group of very like one maybe two dimensional crew members. You know. Who's the jokester? Yeah. Who's the angry it's, person? It's archetypes. Who's mysterious? All that. Suit design usually comes into play. We get some cool like underwater suits. And bad shit has to happen. Those are like the prerequisites of the underwater monster disaster film. So yeah, Tim, that's a good way to open this sucker. Yeah. 
Because as far as the, like I mentioned, the movie wastes no time whatsoever. You get maybe of like a minute and a half of our uh, lead character, Kristen Stewart, in this talking and waxing poetic while she brushes her teeth. And then there is an explosion, kind of the part of the underwater drilling section that they're in. This whole underwater facility starts flooding and all of these explosions are going off. And then it's right off into running, escaping, surviving, trying to find where they need to go next, collecting crew members along the way. And the movie doesn't really stop for its runtime. Like there's some talks and things like that of actual dialogue scenes going back and forth. But for the most part, it keeps a fairly good clip the entire time and keeps that tension together. Speaking of tension, did did you go into this blind? I went into this 100% blind and I am not disappointed. This is an interesting connection here. Because I went into it blind, and the only thing I knew was that Underwater was supposed to come out, and then it got delayed, and then it got shelved, and then it got delayed, and then one company bought out the other company. I don't remember if it was Sony or Warner or whatever, but the movie was like two or three years old or some shit. I had seen a little blurb about it. I don't know if it was a trailer or a movie poster, but then all of a sudden there it was. So that's all I knew. So I went in being like, is this going to be as bad as it probably is going to be? That's all I knew. But the opening that you explained, it completely, I mean, it grabbed me from the first three minutes. I was like, here's Kristen Stewart looking all cool and a little like a little angry, but like a little vulnerable. She's got this bleached hairdo, but it's shaved like a Ripley from, from like Alien 3. Very, very short And like Tim said, she's brushing her teeth and it's one of those deals of like a little rumble. There's like a uh, couple of, I think a couple of um, screws. Yeah, like water droplets and then like a a screw or something, a bolt like shoots out of a wall so that you see there's water pressure. And then like he said, it's off to the races. All you know is that you're really, really far under the water. They're like at the bottom of an ocean in this special research facility mining like a... Yeah, like a, a series of drills yeah, um, supported right. by these They're different drilling. like facilities and energy conduits and things like that. And so imagine that shit. All we know as viewers is here's a girl. She works in this place. They're at the bottom of the ocean. Five minutes into the movie, there are torrents of water gushing down corridors while she's, I think, running like a crazy person trying to, like, alert the other people that we haven't even met yet. It's just, that's it. Bang. Because I think the the thing that's really, I mean, this is a movie where people have got shit to do. Like, I want to get my action within the first five minutes, keep me entertained, and then send me home early. But the whole thing that was really interesting is, This is a movie that works in kind of two levels. Going in blind for anybody who's never seen Underwater and wants to be absolutely as surprised as possible. Which we recommend. We recommend that. Skip ahead maybe five minutes. But the thing that is so interesting is it works on so many levels because at first, as you said, it's a disaster movie. It's them underwater. It's the same idea behind, I we were talking off show, of like the descent of you go into this, you're... You, in their case, like, oh, they're the cave in and they're stuck in the cave and they're trying to navigate it and all of this while they're spelunking. And in this case, they're underwater at the facility and everything that's going on. That would be entertaining and that would end up keeping my attention if that were the full 
part of the movie. Sure. And then they kind of throw that curveball into it of they're not alone down there. Yeah, they're like, do you want a little sriracha in, in your disaster? And they just they just start shaking it in little by little. <laughs> and it's not too much. It's like, like we already covered, I, I think what people, there's that sort of checking your expectations. I will tell you right now, I think the film looks gorgeous. Um, it looks probably more expensive than it was. It also is shot in a really easy to digest way. It's got style, but it isn't that shaky camera shit. It's not like a cut every half a second. You can see what's going on. They're not afraid to be like, here's the environment we built. It's a very contained environment, but there's vastness to it. And you're kind of discovering what's around the corner with the small crew. And again, with the tempering of the expectations, you're not going to get super complicated characters. I mean, they do their their solid attempt at creating certain relationships, you know, that like you can put together, this person likes this person, this person doesn't get along with this person, whatever. And I think it's serviceable. It I, There's certain things that I don't require in order for a movie to be great if it makes up for in spades those other elements. And this yeah. movie gives you a serviceable, if not somewhat familiar situation, you know, of like that standard group, uh, that team. Yeah. They give you that team and you've seen that team in Alien. You've seen that team in, in countless other films, but I'm okay with that team. It's the team that gets the job done and you can sit there and try and figure out who might die first or who's expendable and who isn't. But yeah, there's that setup. And then I think what they end up doing is the script creates a almost a video game vibe of needing to shut down certain areas to keep the flood from getting worse. And then they have to eventually go outside of, of this facility yeah. to do something, maybe weld something. I, I can't remember exactly. Because I think the, the whole thing is that the entire facility, parts of it have been caved in, parts of it have been destroyed. So now they're trying to navigate to opposite ends. But since the connectors are gone, they're sometimes having to put on their suits and walk across the ocean floor to navigate over to other parts of these other sections of the facility. I think the original plan was they're trying to get to the escape pods to essentially kind of go back up to the surface, but they're also trying to go in and I think make sure that all of the the reactor and all of those things are taken care of. I think so you're correct. Seems as that'd be a problem. They want to jettison their asses out of there, but not get blown up while they're trying to descend like, like yeah I, or ascend ascend, ascend. <laughs> i think that's correct um <laughs> i it would be cool if they yeah. descend from the yeah, ocean really. floor but of course like like we had said they do set up i think it it's um i think it's one of those like little uh you're seeing news clips maybe or something like that they do that little um expositional thing in the very beginning where they let you know that this facility is like at the deepest point of like one of the the lowest like the deepest sections of the yeah, ocean, yeah, it's like somewhere. seven miles, um, the Marianas Trench yeah. or something like that. And that, of course, sets your mind into motion of like we all know that the the ocean is so vast that there are all sorts of creepy things down there. And for for viewers like us that didn't know anything about the story, I didn't know if it was going to be like some weird shark attacks or some kind of giant squid, or I knew there'd be something, some kind of threat, but yeah. I didn't really know what kind, if it was just like big angler fish or something like that. But I think it's TJ Miller, the stand-up comedian who was amazing in Silicon Valley. Is 
I think he's the character that is doing the welding or whatever it is. And he, he ends up getting bit by something that that's the reveal is like a smaller, like a little tadpole kind of weird deep sea creature bites him. It's like yeah. latched onto him. Uh, yeah. Cause I, I don't know if it was him or if it was uh, the captain Vincent Cassell, but somebody ended up getting this kind of like a, a lamprey kind eel of eely, looking thing. Yeah. This eely squiddy thing that ends up attacking them and they kill it. And then they kind of bring it in and it's kind of a, what the hell is this? in a very alien situation of just like that's sitting on a table as they're all kind of inspecting it and looking at it. Oh my God, look at this. Maybe they're like moths. Underwater moths. It's like talons. I think this might be a new species. Um, or the thing, take your pick. And that, that little creature is very smartly a killer practical effect. It's like a really, really cool, like silicone puppet kind of creature. Yeah. Which, once again, when we're talking about how movies can, like, pull you in, once I get to see a little creature, when it's not some, like, half-ass CGI thing, I was like, oh, oh, cool. Like, I'm in for some cool stuff. Like, I'm, I'm down for this. You know, it had a, like Tim said, it was more of a, a thing, like the thing vibe, John Carpenter or Alien with the chestburster. It has that feel to it. Yeah, of, like, we have no idea what we're looking at here. Like, what are we getting ourselves into kind of deal? And I like that it is the the practical there just for the fact that then later on in the movie throughout the rest of it, when there are scenes where they end up having to use CGI for certain things and whatnot, it isn't kind of as egregious because you have a mix of both going on. Yeah. That it's not just this entire CGI fest. It's okay, well, we're using CGI for the parts that would be really difficult for us to kind of do entirely practical. Yeah, I can't be one of those prosthetic effect gatekeepers, even though I used to do that sort of stuff for a living. I adore it, but I embrace computer, and I always feel that the end result is pull off an illusion that we as viewers have a hard time deciphering what our eye is seeing. So if you augment practical suit effects with CGI and it's done well, I'm so down. I mean, that's the best way to do it, to be honest. Like, unless you could pull off some insane suit effect like the Samael creature from Hellboy, it's so hard to to fathom that that is actually a suit, including every little a Lovecraftian tendril on its head. Those are all radio-controlled, awesome little servo motor things. But in this, as we've sort of hinted, they start encountering, like, larger and more threatening creatures. It's probably not a good time to ask, but is that a baby? And they're kept in the darkness of the ocean, which is smart, and they're used, I think, effectively, kind of like a Bruce the Shark from Jaws. You get just enough, and you're like, I want to see more. Like, show me more. And then you don't see more for a good 10, 15, even 20-minute stretches where you're like, what happened to, like, the creature thing? Is this still happening? Because there's other shit going on. Now that they can't escape, now they're trapped in there with an outside threat. So you've just upped the ante where you've got something actively trying to get in and you're trying to just not drown. So like yeah. that to me adds a lot to it. So yeah, I think overall for the the 95 minutes that it will take up, go into this blind, check it out. It's 
definitely worth it. I think it's available on HBO Max, I'm pretty sure, for free. If not, like, right. it's, it's worth the price of admission. Just rent it or buy it. But definitely Underwater gets my unsung vote here. It gets mine as well. And Tim and I talked about not giving away the ending. <laughs> Be- but I can't not mention something about the ending, because here's the thing. There is, this film does something in the end that utterly blindsided the shit out of me. And I'm pretty sure Tim felt the same. I had no clue what I was in for. And I think I've come up with a way, because I've been thinking about this for two days, of how to make people want to see this, but not spoil the end. If you were watching a really good Western, and you're getting through the entire movie, and there's something messing with different cowboys and stuff in this movie, and you're trying to figure out what it is, and you're enjoying the movie, and it's great on its own. And in the last act, a cloaking device drops down, and it's a freaking predator. And you're just like, what? Oh my God, nerdgasm, so good, holy shit. It is not a predator in the end of this film, and I am not going to give you even an inkling of what it is. But there is he cloaks and instantly drowns. Yeah, right. (laughs) Instantly. Um, But yeah, I don't know if they have like swimming apparatus. Um, It's not a predator, and some of you guys will not know what it is, and and maybe you'd have to like look it up because they don't verbally say anything. But the people in the know that are going to know what this is, the hair will stand up on your arms. That's all I will say. And then you guys will be in the same camp Tim and I are in, which is we want a sequel so bad. And I did pick up the Blu-ray because I wanted to support this director and the film. And there's some really cool behind the scenes stuff on the Blu-ray. They go very deep into what I just hinted at. And they also break down um, (laughs) very deep, many (laughs) fathoms deep. Um, And they also do break down some really cool stuff about how the movie was made because I really thought that most of the things that were shot with them outside of, of the facility, it looked so good that I assumed they did it in like a water tank, but it, they actually did it not in oh, water. Yeah. yeah. And it was really, it's really well done. They create a sense of that gravity difference um, of being like submerged in water. And they add all these like digital fog and like little, little specks and pieces floating around. So if you end up looking into it a little more, you might even have a bigger appreciation for like what they pulled off. And once again, we're talking about a film that isn't based on an existing property. It's, it's something that it's a unique story. So yeah. enjoy it and support the unique stories that are out there. It's not based on a comic book or anything like that. And then you will, you'll get to the last 15 minutes. And if you went in blind, it'll be like that one gif of Leonardo DiCaprio and once upon a time in Hollywood yeah, yeah. where he jumps up and starts pointing at the TV. Like, what? No way. It, it's got that moment. So, yeah. So, check out William Eubanks' Underwater from 2020. So, Mike, what do we got going on next? I think we should maybe bring it back to land. Um, we, we shouldn't delve any deeper in, into the water. We'll go above ground, and we're going to talk about a movie from 2008. A pretty straightforward creature feature called The Ruins. So guys think? Ancient Mayan temple off the beaten path. I want to go. I'm in. 1,000 years ago. This feels weird, Jeff. Why won't they come near us? This was a place of sacrifice. Wow. 
beautiful. It still is. Terrifying bestseller. Get off me! It's inside me. I want to cut it. The ruins. I'm not okay. Can you see? I'm okay. I'm not okay. Why won't you look at me? It was directed by a guy named Carter Smith, who all I could figure out on him, he'd he's done a couple other film-based things, but he's also like a successful fashion photographer. Finding that out way after I've seen the movie, he does have an eye for photographing all the the cast. You know, he, he brings them forward in, in, a, in a very classy way, so that's cool. Uh, it was written by a gentleman named Scott Smith, and uh, it's based on his novel from 2016, which is also called The Ruins. This film is very nasty and it's very bleak. But what I have heard is that the book is much bleaker. And I think I might actually find the time to read the book. Now I'm intrigued. I, I looked up online differences between the Ruins novel and the Ruins movie, especially since it was the same writer. I'm not going to get into the differences because they, they cover some major spoilers. But anyone out there who likes to read... The book The Ruins from 2006, it has a substantially high ratings. I, I didn't read anything negative about it, so maybe uh, it's worth digging into that. Um, I think there's a lot more to it as well than there is in the movie. Um, but yeah, this film was made for, for a decent budget, and it stars Jenna Malone and Jonathan Tucker and Sean Ashmore, Laura Ramsby, and Joe Anderson. Uh, some of these people I know. And, and I recognized, uh, especially Jenna Malone. She's a great actress. Uh, did you recognize any of these people from other things? So I know Joe Anderson, uh, who plays, I think, the the German guy that they run into, that they become friends with. Joe Anderson was in the Crazies remake. He was the oh, deputy. you're right. You're um, right. That's it. And I always know him from Across the Universe. He was the, the other male lead in that one. Mm-hmm. I always liked Joe Anderson. It was fun seeing him here because I think this was specifically this cast that mid to late 2000s of where John Tucker like existed entirely of he would pop up in this. He would pop up in I think it was the the Texas Chainsaw Massacre remake from around that time. He um, was in that. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a fun cast, but I agree especially around this time period. I feel like a lot of the movies being released kind of were a little nasty, little bleak, hopeless ones mm-hmm. that were coming out for a while from there, which I think the the ruins kind of sets you up initially that you think it's going to go the route of something like a Teristas or something like that, which is another movie I'll get into at some point later. Um, I hope we not, do. Not today. Yeah, not today. Um, but it sets you up as kind of like a, a Teristas thing of, oh, there it's all of these dumb touristy kids here on an exotic location and they're going to get themselves lost in the jungle and they're going to end up getting attacked by somebody. Yeah. It's like four hot kids that meet a hot guy from another 
he's like traveling from, I think, Germany, right? Yeah. I mean, he's like yeah. with a friend of his, but his friend like left him to go run off with some girl or something. It, it so starts like, out so basic. Like it really does. The setup is, you guys will all be like, I've seen this 50 times. The setup, just the opening. Yeah. And then I don't know how, I mean, we, we probably, it's the main plot point. So they end up going in because they have a connection to, oh, my brother or something is an archaeologist. He's doing a dig, so we can go to the dig site, but we just have to not get caught. So they go, and it's kind of these, as the name implies, it's these ruins. all kind it's, of co- it's Mayan ruins, right? Yeah, in the yeah. middle of the jungle, like in this clearing with all of these vines over the ruins. And they end up getting there, and once they end up kind of starting to explore they end up getting stopped by all of these other locals with bow and arrows and knives and guns who they don't understand what they're yelling at them. There's kind of this miscommunication of neither one can understand the other one. And they end up killing one of the guys that's with the group. And kind of drives them up the ruins to the top of this kind of Mayan pyramid. Yeah. I think the movie has a, it's not a deep film, but I think they are throwing a little bit of like the ugly American stigma in there. You know, like these, these beautiful (laughs) American people that aren't really, they don't know enough. They want to go see stuff that's like sacred and and hidden, but they don't really know the culture. They don't really know. They don't push that heavy. It's not like huge social commentary, but But realistically, if it had a subtitle, it would be white people ruining everything. The movie. Yeah, really. And they wouldn't be wrong here. <laughs> you guys couldn't just stay at the resort. Yeah. So I don't know how you feel about the ruins. The I originally, I liked it the first time I saw it years ago when it came out. And recently rewatching it, I think I still ended up enjoying it because it, it's a very, um, it's kind of like a bottle episode of a movie. It's very tense. It's very confined just because of them being stuck almost the entire runtime at the top of these uh, this pyramid here for these ruins. Yeah, if they try to come down, they're going to get shot. Yeah, by, because by now the all of these locals are kind of camped out at the bottom to make sure that they stay up there. It's almost like you you opened a door and now you have to stay there. And they're <laughs> just free, they're freaking the fuck out. Like they want to get off this thing. Now, for you, did it feel like a long jungle version of the raft from Creep Show 2? It felt 1000% like that. It did. <laughs> Which but, not in a bad way. No, no. Because we like when we talk about like unsung horror movies, it's simply the fact that this film oftentimes gets shit on. You know, people cast it aside like reviewers or people that are putting it on a list or whatever. It's not the highest rated film or anything. I think part of it might be that the promotional team, which I don't think had anything to do with the director, they slapped together this like kind of corny DVD cover that just screams uh, like ripoff of a different film. I don't know if we ever covered it, but we're going to cover it called The Descent. It's basically like a scared woman's face and she's like looking upward and the the coloration of it, the way it's letter, the lettering on it, it really looks like The Descent cover. So there's some people that like complain it's it's just like a ripoff of of those sorts of movies, but I don't think it is. I'm I'm a big fan of People being trapped in an, an environment where it's like, it's dangerous to be on it and it's dangerous to be off it. And what Tim and I have not touched on yet is 
there are these these vines that this natural vegetation it would seem with these red flowers that are growing on on these ruins and they're sentient we don't know exactly what their deal is but they are vicious and nasty and and they are like hungry for human flesh they're yeah. not we're not even talking like you're going to get a rash. We're talking like they're going to burrow below your fucking epidermis and dig into your body and just kill the shit out of you. Which the first time I saw was kind of surprising because I was expecting to be more like, oh, like if one of them dies, it's going to like pull them away kind of deal. It's like, no, they're it's actively gunning for them. Right. The entire movie of just like, oh, nope. Well, you least expect it. Vines coming out. It's like if M. Night's movie the happening was actually scary. It's like you, you did that and you, you merged it with the raft episode of creep show too. But yeah, you know, we, we obviously have to have one character, uh, be studying f- to get his doctor. Like he's, I think he's almost a doctor or maybe yeah. he is a doctor. I was going to be a doctor. That was my dream. But when you have people that are like getting, torn asunder by by killer vegetation you need someone on there who's either like a doctor or an emt so that they can come up with ways to extend the life of these people that are stuck you know <laughs> dying slowly but i think what grabs me about the ruins is it knows what it wants to be it wants to be a tense grab your boyfriend or girlfriend by the knee kind of thing it wants to be a bloody scary movie and it really achieves that there are yeah. some effects in this movie that yeah, I wasn't expecting to see them. Because in that regard, it, it kind of almost reminded me of kind of like a cabin fever situation of we're going to have some intense scenes coming on as all of them just kind of get affected by what's going yeah. on here. In this case, just being binds. I, I agree that the body horror element is super similar to the body horror element in cabin fever. This just lacks that zany off the wall Eli Roth like humor. Oh, yeah. The humor shit is is almost nowhere to be found in this film. There's a couple of jokes maybe, but it's it you can count them on one hand. Yeah, it's like it's early on in the movie because once they actually get to the ruin and they end up up on top of the pyramid, I think that's when you don't run into any of that scripting of, oh, it's a tense situation and somebody just died, but somebody's gonna like crack a one liner. It's like, no, there there's nothing going on there. It's yeah. Serious as a heart attack for the the other 65 minutes. And I will say that the script, um, again, though simple, it's pretty naturalistic in, in the writing. And I think it is a film where with lesser actors and maybe lesser direction, you would have a ton of hyperbole and, and theatricality in the acting and it wouldn't be disturbing. And I know way back in one of our earlier episodes, uh, Tim and I talked about how We've seen so much that you almost get desensitized to like nothing could create um, like a ripple through you where you're like, whoa, I'm actually a little disturbed. And I don't think that the ruins is like an eviscerate your brain, like like gut wrenching experience. But I have to say there are three or four sequences where the actors are selling that they are in agony and the way it's cut together and, and the way they're using they're using blood where it should be, but they're also not shying away from it and making it stylized. I mean, granted, you know that the the vegetation that, that is sentient isn't real, like it can't be because that doesn't yeah. exist, but you're still kind of, or I was very sold 
on on the predicament. And that's one of those things where I don't need a ton of story if most of the story is wanting someone to just get out alive, like somebody. And it builds that in a really solid way. It's not a freaking 10-star movie, but for a balls-out horror movie, I give it like a solid 85. Like, it's up in that B plus to O. It could have been an A with a little more meat to it. But I I rather like it. I have a very weird soft spot for for this movie. And I'm glad you brought it up because it's a movie that I remember seeing back in like 2008, 2009 liking it and then just never returning to it until now and um catching it again it's i enjoy it it's fun well it's fun in quotes it's fun in that if you like to be grossed out kind of way yeah i only have one little thing to add to that and that's the fact that um anyone that digs uh physical media and you don't mind spending like 10 bucks or something i don't know if it's streaming in the unrated cut but a lot of times an unrated cut is kind of bullshit and you watch the movie and there's barely anything different in it. The theatrical cut of the ruins is a scant 90 minutes and it's, it's bloody and it's, it's like creepy and shit and it's got an okay ending. The unrated version and the disc comes with both. I think Oh yeah. Um, the unrated version is a full four minutes longer. And for anyone who's actually counted when watching a movie, four minutes is actually a long time. There is extra gore that I do think punctuates and and drives home the gore a little bit more effectively. But the most important thing is there is a, a completely alternate ending. And it really is the ending that should have been the theatrical cut. The only reason I think it was cut and, and reshot and done differently is because the alternate ending and the unrated cut is more bleak and it's more creepy. And it actually sets up, like, I guess, like, um, a bigger threat. I don't want to give away what. But I think it's it's absolutely the way to go. Um, the theatrical ending is fine, but the alternate ending is is choice. That's that's my take on that. So, yeah. seek that out. It's the, that alternate is, as you said, it's a much bleaker ending, which for this mid-2000s horror streak of a lot of those very bleak movies i was actually surprised that the theatrical ending ended up go i i don't want to say like it's a happy ending but it's it's a much different ending that i would have expected based around the rest of the film yeah it doesn't fit the tone which is a shame because i feel like all the people that just saw it once in the movie theater not that the ending suddenly changes how you take in the entire film, but it is the last thing that you're stuck, you know, that you're left with. And it's a stronger ending on the Blu-ray. So that is The Ruins from 2008. So moving from our Mayan ruins, uh, we're going to end up going to, uh, I guess, Italy uh, again in this case. So in this, I think actually the movie itself is supposed to take place in Germany um, after kind of a, a gothic cathedral gets built on a mass grave. But it is Michelle Suave's 1989 film, The Church. Shh. Last night, the angel of evil possessed me, and I became his servant. I want to do evil. To kill. Thank you. 
for everybody else that may have listened to like our uh, the Halloween our backdoor pilot on my other show, Screen Refresh, we did the Halloween special, and I talked about Demons by Lamberto Bava. They ended up doing Demons. They did Demons too, and then they were originally thinking about doing a third Demons movie from that series. Bava eventually left. That's when Michelle Suave ended up kind of moving into that. You might know him from in the first Demons. He was the guy passing out tickets with a half metal face. Uh, he ended up doing Aquarius, a.k.a. Stage Fright. I think that maniac is hiding in here. You've gone out of your mind. One, kill her! The another slasher film that I'll love to talk about at some point too. Yeah, that's 19, once, 1987, and oh, I can't wait for us to do our 80s slasher episode to talk about that. I it, we'll get into stage fright eventually, but it's one of those movies that if I flip on like Shutter TV and it happens just be on it, I'll just watch it the rest of the time. I'm like, yeah, I'm on board. Let's just do this. Yeah. So when he came on to the project, he wanted to distance it from doing the other demon movies. He wanted it to be a little bit more kind of cohesive or a little bit more less um, corny, res- less yeah, like a bit more of like respect, a little more prestige in terms of the story that they're going to build into this. So he ended up moving it away from that, the uh, the Demoni series and ended up doing the church. So I don't know at what point you may have originally have seen the the church, Mike, but for any of those who aren't aware of the film. <laughs> It follows it's it is a little bit more cohesive than the rest of the demons movies. As you know, like the other ones, they get a little kind of wacky in terms of the the plot lines, in terms of the what's gonna be going on, especially demons too. This one, as I said, it's all of these kind of it, very crusader-esque. These knights end up going through, sweeping through this village and killing everyone there because they have the mark of the devil. Behold the stigmata, the sign of the demon! Kill them! All of them! Not one must be allowed to live! They create a mass grave and to cleanse it, we're going to build a church on top of a mass grave because why not? It's a grand spectacle of an opening. Oh yeah, like you you know it you know it's being done on a budget. Like it's not you're not watching the 10 commandments, but man, they go for the gusto. There's like pasta splatter being thrown everywhere. Heads getting cut off. Like it it's just crazy. I don't remember like I remember originally it being a much shorter opening sequence, but it's it's like 15 minutes long it kind is. of leading in of all of this stuff. Um, but yeah, like it's solid kind of medieval havoc going on before they end up jumping to present day. And they jump to present day in an awesome way, because like Tim said, a whole bunch of people get buried and they build a church over them. And when it cuts from this medieval period to the present day, it does a really cool job of showing you that same exact spot with this this symbol. But you see that there's plastic hanging on the walls so you know it's modern day but you're not seeing anybody and then the camera pulls in reverse backwards and takes you through the church like going in reverse yeah and then you start seeing the modern day people in it very very cool way of doing that tim will get back to the plot but i wanted to mention a couple other things about the director it's really a shame that i feel that his name should be mentioned more often in the company of the Italian greats like Bava and Fulci and Argento. 
like Tim had mentioned, he made Stage Fright, but he also made The Sect in 1991, and a film that I know we both love called Cemetery Man. I'm the watchman of the Buffalora Cemetery. My name's Francesco Della Morte. I don't know how the epidemic started. All I know is that some people, on the seventh night after their death, come back to life. Uh, oh, the, alternate, yes. the alternate title is Della Morte Della More. It's based off an Italian adult comic series called Dylan Dog. That movie is fucking awesome. And we're going to get to that probably when we talk about like Living Dead stuff, I would think. But that's an awesome movie. Um, he also was the second unit director for Argento's Tenebrae and Phenomena and Demons and Opera. Um, he worked for Terry Gilliam as an assistant director on uh, The Adventures of Baron Munchausen and The Brothers Grimm. Um, and like Tim had also mentioned, he kind of acted a little too. He he was in The New York Ripper. Uh, he was in Demons, like like Tim said, and he was in Absurd, which is a sequel to The Grim Reaper. Um, but the man has done a lot. I mean, he, he directed Dario Argento's World of Horror. And I think what happened is he's so visionary and so classy he has, well, maybe his son has passed away. I, I'm, I apologize for not knowing that. But he took many years off from filmmaking. He left cinema to care for his ailing son. I mean, he, this is years back, so I'm not sure what the outcome is. But I feel like that's why there was this outpouring of great movies from him. And then this stark drop-off. For many years. Yeah. But back to the story, sir. Sorry about that. It's just, I feel like the dude doesn't get enough love and we're talking unsung. He's an unsung director. Oh yeah. And I mean, I'm glad we talked about him just for the fact that I think if people weren't um, super aware of it, I mean, right on the poster for the church, you have it like Dario Gento in big letters up at the top. Yeah. That everybody either thinks, oh yeah, it was one of his movies. Well, no, it's the... A Dario Argento produced, so it's a presents. Yeah, as far as that, or which is okay, kind of, well. it's kind of fucked up too, because there are eight writers on this film. Half of them are uncredited, and half are credited. And you're right. I mean, it's like the Andy Warhol's Frankenstein when it's actually yeah. Paul Morrissey. Um, but yeah, you know, Argento is slapping his name on things, and that leads to Asia Argento being in the movie. Which, I mean, if it's a case of the movie wouldn't be made without having his name kind of backing it, then sure, okay, like, use your powers for good kind of deal. But just everybody uh, remember that. Put his name on it, too. Yeah, put his name on it, too. Like it's... Henry Selick directed A Nightmare Before Christmas. That wasn't not, Tim Burton. Not Tim Burton, no. <laughs> <laughs> and <Anyway>, so <laughs> that goes back to Nope, <laughs> with the people behind the scenes not getting credit, but. So yeah, so now that we have this church in present day, it kind of, the entire movie follows these various people that are, and eventually end up getting kind of trapped at the church because the, kind of a, an archaeologist of sorts, um, him and his wife, he ends up going in and kind of finding that plaque down in the, the church and it opens up and he gets possessed and then he ends up scratching somebody else and they get possessed and it's very demons in terms of that. But I think instead of everybody kind of transforming and kind of turning into a demon like the other two films, it's much more, uh, I don't want to say relaxed, um, it, it, it's much more subtle in terms of 
<laughs> I say subtle, and then there's a scene in a phone booth where he rips his own heart out. Hello? Well, I think all right, it's hard because, all right, thematically, the only real connection to that that earliest DNA of it uh, intending for it to be Demons 3 is Demons is a bunch of people trapped in a movie theater. Th- then the demonic presence spreads. Demons 2 is a bunch of people trapped in an apartment complex and the demonic presence spreads. And this is a bunch of people in a church and the same thing happens. But Tim's right. Other than that, the rest of it's so different. And I think until we end up doing one of our passports to terror on Italian horror cinema, you guys have heard us touch on Argento and Giallo and like the dream logic and the fever dream vibe that is inherent to a lot of Italian horror. The church has this this deeply rooted love of art and composition and those sorts of things. So it has a polish to it that doesn't carry over into the performances because we're dealing with dubs again. So, so some of the dubs are a bit jarring and they, they make it a disconnect, but wouldn't you say that the, the tone and the the pacing is more dreamy. It's more, it, it does lag, I guess in the middle is what a lot of people might say. It isn't yeah. like this rapid fire kind of movie. It's more of a, a mood. It has a dread. There, there's a sense of dread to it well, like, that, that I think is set up by that opening of yeah, all these I, innocent I people being murdered. I think it's also because the, the movie gives itself time to breathe um, compared to like the, the demons movies of you have people turning into these demons and then kind of this rampage going on this. There's people getting possessed. There's people turning into things. But it's never a case of kind of full-on pandemonium of people running around and attacking people and tearing people apart. It's much more kind of subtle of we have somebody transforming, but maybe they're trying to go after somebody else. But it's not actually like just turning into a demon and then going on a rampage. We're kind of seeing them attack somebody, but then it's, okay, well, I, I... sensed that I'm turning into something. I need to go confess at the church. I am no longer the sacristan. I'm not Herman any longer. Last night, the angel of evil possessed me. Yeah, all all of the bad people are self-aware, which yeah. I think makes it more eerie. It would be like if your, your mom or dad was saying to you, like, I love you, I want to break your neck, but I don't want to. And it's like, that's really scary. Like, there's a creep factor to that of a part of the person still being aware, but then there's yeah. this force that's like driving them. Cause it's almost kind of like a, a body snatcher scenario of this demonic force at the bottom of the church. Isn't trying to just go and by mass, just take over everything. It's trying to slowly infiltrate these different people. Almost it's corrupt, kind of like a, almost a Prince of darkness yep. situation. <laughs> Dude, that's it. Prince of Darkness just shot through my head like four seconds ago. Exactly. Yeah. It's that corruption. It's it's, it's, Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very Prince of Darkness. Because then the other people are starting to like affect their moods, affect their personalities. People are starting to hear things. They're starting to kind of imagine things. And it's all from this kind of corrupted force emanating from the bottom of the church. And then as it's taking over other people, 
they're all par becoming part of this kind of overall goal of we have to bring this archaeologist's like wife here and we have to now that he's possessed he's turning into kind of like a, a devil analog and we have to bring about the like the antichrist kind of deal it has a a much loftier goal than the other demons movies because if you sit down and look at it it does actually have like a cohesive storyline beginning to end that even though there's some dream kind of mm -hmm. not really dream logic but there, it's very kind of dreamy scenes here and there it's never anything that's outrageous of well this makes zero sense it's and you could odd, you could feel you could there. feel that that's that's the director pushing against what it was supposed to be he has a vision and I think he's doing a really good job of bringing that vision to life. I don't want to talk about the framing through the entire film, the review, but the compositions of these shots are awesome. Like that's yeah. when I, when I think of the church, there is a lot of stuff that I love about the church. And, you know, Tim was, was the person who was like, we should do the church. I'm like, you're absolutely right. It's one of those films that I feel everybody that loves end of the world shit. And, and, you know, demonic possession but not in that spinning head exorcist way more of like a vibe and an overarching feel the church has all the right ingredients in there including the music Goblin, who we both love, working with Keith Emerson, who has scored a lot of uh, great horror films. It's the two of them, and then there's also some pieces from Philip Glass, who I know we've both talked about. Um, yeah. He did the Candyman score and, and the whole Watchmen slash Vecna thing. Philip Glass is very talented, and he's very haunting in, in what he writes. Um, and this movie, it's barely ever brought up, and it really... It's one of the coolest movies from that era, in my opinion, Yeah, that, that not mean, enough people see. And I mean, you get a bit of it. I mean, I feel like if there was a movie that we wanted, uh, like, A24 to do a remake on kind of deal, this yeah. would be the perfect kind of thing for it. Because you have this movie that there's this dread, there's this kind of demonic craziness going on, but it's ramping itself up that until you get to, like, the last 20 minutes, last 30 minutes, where now it's just full-on bedlam yeah. kind of deal it's you get a bit of everything without kind of tossing that tone and tossing that feel around the entire time it's no it, it takes its time getting there and it works its way into it and it's very deserving of where it gets to if ari aster were to have to do a remake of a film his name is all over this thing like i think he would nail it yeah it like the 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 styles are similar but yeah i mean I don't know. I feel like we've covered so much cool shit in the movie and we haven't even really gotten to all the cool shit in the movie. There, there's some there's some set pieces. A lot of it's borrowed in an interesting way from actual pieces of art. Like everyone, I think, that knows anything about fantasy art knows who Boris Vallejo is. Like he, he was just... He he ruled the eighties, like the seventies and the eighties. There were there were posters on on people's walls, and he did book covers, and he has this uh, really polished, almost photo finish painting style. And he would paint these, 
you know, gorgeous uh, women that were just like flawless and they would have bat wings and all these super cut, like romance novel looking dudes, but they would, you know, be centaurs and things like that. And he did this painting of, um, of a demon holding this woman. And all you see is like this naked woman's ass and her, her back and he's embracing her. And I think one of his claws is like pushing into her butt cheek and the wings are wrapped around her. It's a very indelible image of seventies, like fantasy art. And that image is like faithfully replicated with actors and, and, you know, practical makeup effects. They just recreate that image. It's weird because you don't expect to see something like that in a movie, but there it is. And there's a few instances of that. Yeah. Cause I, I think the, the entire, back half of this movie really leans into a lot of that very fantasy gothic art style especially between the the contraptions all of the the look of the architecture from the goat designs and all of this other stuff going on at the bottom of the church but then also the setup of some of the scenes you have uh (laughs) i uh (laughs) hesitate to say a demonic shunting um but there. (laughs) There's there's a few sequences that would be right at home in a Slayer video. Like, they're so metal. Like, the imagery is just such a classic metal image. But yeah, you're right. The shunting. Tim always brings up... We have to eventually cover... (laughs) We we have to cover a movie called Society, which is awesome. We'll get to it. Maybe Unsung Horror Volume 3 or something. But yeah, there's this part of this movie where all these people start blending together in this writhing mass of fleshy insanity. It's like something that would give David Cronenberg nightmares and he's a body horror guy, but it's called the <laughs> shunting. And I think Tim's referenced the, the term shunting in two or three episodes. And I'm just wondering, are people Googling the shunting to try and find out what it is? That's what it is. Which so. two or three times is not a lot of times, but no. also it's a lot of times. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh man. So yeah, it's if if you watch the church, uh, there's a scene later that you'll realize like, oh yeah, that that sounds about right. Yeah, but yeah, I think for the if you're looking for that kind of um, demonic, satanic kind of a the weird athral late '80s, early '90s feel of an Italian horror movie, I don't think you can go wrong with the church. Um, it's much more put together in terms of the cohesive storyline from the demons films, but you still have a lot of the, the fun insanity and some of yeah. the effects from that. Just, I think probably I would, uh, I, w- I would probably say it, it's definitely less gory than the demons movies. Well, it's more ambitious, but let's not forget certain things like people throwing themselves onto um, what are those what are those machines for, for cracking open concrete? Oh, like a, like a uh, jackhammer? A jackhammer. There you go. I mean, I Tim, Tim, Tim could say it's less gory, but, you know, there are beheadings, people ripping hearts out, and a dude that throws himself onto a jackhammer and, and literally eviscerates himself, which is kind of nuts. Um, and I think the last thing I, that we could leave you with, uh, Tim mentioned in the very beginning that they were going to shoot, they wanted to shoot it in Germany. Uh, they actually wanted to shoot it in Nuremberg and they did some test filming, but the, the people from the town, like the mayors and and whoever was in charge, they told them no. So there you go. They couldn't shoot it there, even though they wanted to. Yeah. 
So I think the the movie itself was shot in like Budapest, but the movie takes place in like Germany or something like that. Yeah, something uh, like that. There's some scenes of them riding around in town when Asia sneaks out. Yeah. And I feel like um there's a few signs, like some signage, and I think you're right about the location. But yeah, anyone interested, seek that out. Find it find it streaming, buy it if you find it for a good price um and, and check that out. So Mike, that takes us from a movie with a demonic force trying to silently move through people as it takes over this church. Uh, do we have anything similar coming up next? I think we should go to a film that I have forced so many people to watch. And it makes me so happy when those people can't stop talking about, I don't know how I never heard of this movie. And that is a movie from 1987 called The Hidden. The most wanted criminal in the universe. It's not human. Has come to Earth. Step out of the car slowly. Now nothing can stop it. Except the cops. Who followed it here. Am I crazy? Or does this seem just a little bizarre? You think it's over now? The Hidden. You're wrong. Rated R starts this Friday at a theater near you. Uh, it was released by New Line Cinema, and it was directed by Jack Shoulder, who is a gentleman that Tim and myself always gush about because he directed Nightmare on Elm Street 2. He also made like a, a weird 80s action movie called Renegades. He edited The Burning, which is an awesome slasher movie <laughs> that we're going to cover. Uh, he made Alone in the Dark, which is also a slasher. He made Wishmaster 2. He seems to direct a lot of sequels and things like that. The Tremors TV series, which... I know you guys did a deep dive on Tremors and Screen Refresh, but yeah, he's responsible for the Tremors TV series. But yeah, Jack Shoulder, he made a movie that is just so great at taking a couple different familiar genres and turning that shit on its head. You've seen this, correct? Yes. yes. So surprisingly enough, I had only seen parts of this movie over the years until you brought it up for Unsung Horror, and I sat down. I watched it and then oh, I bought so, this movie. It's so fucking good. I like, it's just love so good. this movie. Yeah. I'm so glad you love this movie. I am. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like when we were talking about Underwater. It's a movie that wastes no time whatsoever. Right. It just immediately just kicks right in for, well, I'll let you kind of get into that. All right. The film opens with security cam footage and it's just an unassuming looking guy and he uh, he's robbing the bank and he shoots a bunch of people, and it's all on the actual, like, grainy black and white footage, because it's 87. He leaves there, he jumps into a, a fast sports car, and the movie just opens with a crazy-ass chase. It's just him running full steam across, like, regular surface streets and on and off the highway. He's got cops chasing him. There's a huge roadblock set up. He's driving through parks with, like, ladies pushing baby carriages he's just cruising he doesn't give a shit about anything he's blasting 80s hair metal and then they're setting up your main character which is a guy named michael nori he's a great actor very unsung actor and he plays a guy named thomas beck kind of a dirty harry but not nearly as dirty this roadblock's being set up 
and it's so macho. It's all these different guns being like loaded up and cocked and you hear the sirens and it's just a wall of police cars setting up this barricade. And this dude just drives straight into it and does not give a shit. And the car explodes and he's burning up and you're like, what am I watching? And then you end up moving along to a hospital and there is a character actor named Ed Ross, and he plays this gruff detective named Cliff Willis. And Cliff Willis is walking with a doctor or a nurse, and I can't remember which one, and they're talking about how the man might not make it. And this guy gives one of my favorite monologues in the whole movie. He killed 12 people, wounded 23 more, stole six cars, most of them Ferraris. Rob, they banked six supermarkets, four jewelry stores, and a candy shop. Six of the ones he killed, he carved up with a butcher knife. Two of them were kids. He did all that in two weeks. If anybody deserves to go that way, sure in the hell was him. So now we have the unknown killer in the hospital here. Kyle McLaughlin ends up showing up at the police station looking for this man and saying he's from the FBI. He's here to investigate this case. He's been looking for this guy for about a month now. Agent Lloyd Gallagher. Yeah. Which, <laughs> that, that's his name. Which this guy that he's been hunting down only kind of went on this killing spree and robbed this bank like within the past day. So evidently he's been changing names and switching around and he's been hunting this guy down for a while as uh, throughout the, the country. And I don't know. I mean, we'll probably not spoil the, the whole movie, but we should probably at, le at least let them know the... Yeah. The big initiating factor. We, we, we have to. I mean, you're dealing with an alien presence, and you're also dealing with a character who isn't what he seems to be. So we're not going to spoil the character who isn't what he seems to be, but what we will touch on is there is an alien being that can jump from one person to another. Yeah. And it, it does it in a very violent way, and it controls that person. And it uses that person like a freaking ever-ready battery. It just, it gets in you, and it has you do whatever the fuck it wants, and it doesn't really care about the trauma that's being done to your body. So it just yeah. uses you up like a battery. And then when it's like, oh, battery's too low, time to jump into another person. And Agent Lloyd Gallagher has a much better understanding of the how and the why and the what. But he tends to keep his... His disgruntled partner who didn't want to have a partner, Tom Beck, he keeps him in the dark for the first half of the movie. So the dude's losing his shit because he's basically us being like, well, how, what do you mean it'll be someone next week? Like, what are you talking about? Like, he can't grasp what is this guy talking about? And that kind of sets into motion the unique take on a buddy cop movie. I know Tim and I have talked off camera about the similarities between the hidden in a certain Friday the 13th movie, because it's essentially the exact same setup. It's Jason goes to hell. I mean, anyone that knows, knows, but that is the same basic storyline in terms of the, the being, but yeah, what you get is an extremely well put together, small, small scale. Like, like it feels, it feels independent. It feels like a maverick production you know they're they're making something yeah. that they are loving and you can feel that love that's in every 
frame of the movie. There, there's like some cameos. You get like Lin Shay. Um, you guys would probably know her from like Insidious and stuff like that. Lin Shay is in it. And Danny Trejo makes a, a really quick cameo appearance. There's a lot very of quick. very quick. There's a lot of familiar character actors. Clue Gulliger, who unfortunately passed away recently. He's uh, Jesse's dad in Nightmare on Elm Street 2. He's also Bert from Return of the Living Dead. He's in it and he chews the scenery. Ted White, who hardcore Friday the 13th fans know, is Jason from part four. He plays an agent. So it's kind of cool to see Ted White, you know, not in a prosthetic makeup. Uh, that's really cool. I want to talk a little about the special effects in a minute, but I want to get like Tim's opinion because again, I haven't really talked to him about it. Yeah. How did you like where it went? Like the, the, the trajectory of it? I mean, I loved where it went just because it's, it kind of reminded me of, um, if you know, the, the 98 film fallen with Denzel. Yeah, absolutely. It's this kind of finding out what's happening next, but also is the person next to you on your side? Are they one of the enemy? Are they going to turn around and kill you next? So it's always trying to find out where this creature is going throughout this entire film that I loved all of that. I liked how all of what was going on throughout the movie, they had this kind of background story of, that they never really get into too far with Kyle McLaughlin's character of what is his interaction or kind of what's his history with the guy that they're hunting down. Mm-hmm. And they touch upon a couple things throughout the movie, but they never really spend too much time kind of giving you a full explanation or here's a full backstory. And I appreciated that throughout the movie because it's kind of piece it together yourself. It's not spoon feeding you yeah. this entire like plot line. And I think I appreciated the characters a bit more because of that. I also think that, and you'll probably agree with me, the script is really funny when it oh, wants yeah. to, but only when it wants to be funny. And it's funny when um, it's taking things that are inherent to the plot, but certain characters aren't seeing what we know as the viewer. So there's some funny elements that happen there. One thing that really comes to mind, I mentioned how the 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 creature, the killer, it doesn't give a shit about anything. It just has its goal and it's going to go and, and do what it wants to do. And there's some standout lines of one of the characters going and stealing a bunch of heavy metal music because this creature likes fast cars. It likes speed and it likes loud, brash, like metal music. And there's this scene that it like sticks out in my head all the time. It's one of the characters that has this creature in him. He's stealing shit from like a a bodega music shop type of place. And you got this colorful dude that works behind the counter. And he's sort of like, he's giving this guy a little shit of like, you know, like, what what are you doing, buddy? And then he starts saying, I'm talking to you, Wang. And it's like the way he's, he's coming at him and he's about to like beat him down. But he has no idea what he's walking into. And then yeah. that same character ends up going to, like, get some food because the body needs food to live. But the alien doesn't give a shit about it. So he's eating his lunch in, in a small diner with a boom box and this, like, hair metal cranked in the middle of the place. It's just I mean, it, so it's a good. killer soundtrack. It is. But it's, like, it's funny moments like that where... I don't know why, but there's almost like a falling down vibe to those scenes, even though yeah. it, it isn't defense. It's a totally different character. Which I don't know if it was supposed to be. So 
the body he steals in the hospital, they even mention of, oh, yeah, he had like a triple bypass. And oh, yeah, they like do a, a great job. Yeah. Of letting and, you know this guy's on his last leg to begin with. It's awesome. It was funny because then when it shows him at the diner, just swolfing down all this stuff and all of a sudden his like body's making noises and <laughs> yeah. he's like groaning. <laughs> And I didn't know if it was supposed to be like, oh, the alien is like using up his body or if it's no, the body he stole should not be eating these things. And he's oh, going I think to kill I, himself. I think that's totally what it was, because <laughs> which is because, so because funny. the doctor, the doctor says something like there's no way Mr. So-and-so could have walked out of here. And, and instead, he's like eating a bacon cheeseburger and like a chili dog. Yeah, no, that's totally yeah. what that was. And there's also like there's some weird shit that I don't want to give you guys the context for. I'll just tell you some of the moments. There is a scene where someone gets screwed to death, like a person has sex with someone till they're dead, and then their voracious appetite just wants to keep going. And then there's also some really solid action scenes that are done on like a street level, and you know there's no CGI and there's no like opticals. It's really just stunt people doing their thing, and and it has a smaller feel, but it, it's like a very it's a very in your face. Uh, like sequence and it's cool and, and I like that yeah. but yeah I think it's a movie that will resonate with a lot of people and they give you quite a bit for a mere like 90 minute movie There, there's a lot of cool stuff in it and one of the things for for any effects nerds out there the special effects are top notch and Kevin Yeager who did Chucky and and a bunch of other things his production team, like, like his group was doing it. But at the time you had some really huge names. They weren't maybe huge then, but they went on to be really big that were working with Kevin Yeager. Um, you have Robert Kurtzman and Howard Berger, who are two of the letters of what became KNB effects. And you have a guy named Everett Burrell who later teamed with John Volich and they made a company called optic nerve. So when you're watching this movie, I think Tim will agree that the effects are they're used sparingly, not to the point where it wears down and it doesn't have an impact and they don't really use the same gag twice. It's like they give you something fresh and interesting almost consecutively through the whole movie. Yeah. So it keeps you guessing as to like, I want to see a little more and like, oh, wow, that's what I'm seeing. That's kind of disturbing and weird. And then they're on to like an action scene. So it splits it up really nicely. Which was nice considering that I feel like this was a time period where it was very easy for them to abuse things like bladder effects. Yeah, for sure. Because it was like a, a lot of the stuff around this time, it was everybody's foreheads pulsing like Beast Within style and all of this other stuff. That to see them use things, but use it and just kind of like, eh, you like that? Okay, well, we got something else later. And it's not just the same thing over and over throughout the movie. I think overall it ended up doing it a favor. Yeah. And I mean, I think in terms of the acting too, anyone listening to this, when we said the name Kyle McLaughlin, if if your ear is perked up because you love Twin Peaks or any of the other stuff he's in, you know that McLaughlin's like a really solid actor. And this is a cool opportunity to see him like maybe before he was so connected to Twin Peaks. He gives a really good performance. And the Michael Norrie guy... It's someone that you guys might recognize when, like, you'll know the face, but you won't really know his name with it. But he delivers a very layered, believable performance, too. And I think there is definite chemistry between this mismatched team. And as the movie progresses, I know for a fact that I I really did 
get more invested in them as friends. And it makes uh, a sequence that happens that wraps the film up in the end. It it gives it some weight and it does resonate. It's I, I really do think the hidden is it is one of the best hidden gems of 1987. <laughs> and I will leave this on the fact that there actually was a, a barely known direct to video sequel in 1993. It's called the hidden two. And all I will say on that is that it should remain hidden. It's not something that anyone needs to see. I'm going to go seek it out now. Ah, you'll watch it and you'll enjoy it for what it is, but it's bad. It's not nearly as good as The Hidden. I mean, I feel like The the Hidden 2 is ripe for like a, a Jim Wynorski sequel. Of just you are dead on. <laughs> You're dead on with that. Uh, the, the Hidden 2 plays very much like a uh, like Scanner Cop 2, like two, two scanners. It's that sort of thing. What do we got next, buddy? So I think we, like we said at the top of this, this is going to be kind of a wacky one in terms of there's something for everybody in this episode for Unsung. We have the aquatic horror. We have your kind of uh, nature gone wild body horror. We have the satanic church. We have aliens going on. And now we're getting something a little bit more organic, something a little bit more grounded. We have a a movie that is in a long line of a popular subgenre of killer kids. It is oh, the killer kids. <laughs> it is the <laughs> 2009 movie Orphan. They brought her into their home. You have a piano? Yeah. You'd like to learn how to play? I would love to. But she's not who she pretends to be. You told me you didn't know how to play. No, I didn't. She's been lying to me. On July 24th. The orphanage she came from has never heard of her. <gasps> Esther has a secret. She started the fire. Oh, come on. You will never see coming. Yeah! Orphan rated R. Esther. Starts July 24th. How so, orphan. Orphan, sweet orphan. <laughs> oh, boy. I mean, from the your bloody birthdays and your Mikey's and your all of these different ones. The Bad now, Seed, which is the, a classic. The Bad Seed is a classic. I do want to do an episode on Killer Kids. At I, some do point. I do, too. I do, too. And so I will I say Bad Seed. The Good Son uh, I feel is one of the more popular killer kid films, yeah. but I do not think it holds up. I, I watched it not too long ago, maybe five, six years ago. Um, it's not a bad film. The performances aren't horrible or anything like that, but I like, it's crazy how the bad seed is an older black and white film. And I think it's just a superior evil kid movie, you know, to something like the good son, but this is a whole different kind of killer kid movie. And I don't know if I made a mistake here, because I have a soft spot for this flick. And I had sort of asked him, like, have you seen Orphan? And, and I was surprised that he hadn't. So I kind of made him watch it. What did you think of Orphan, Tim? So <laughs> are you lukewarm on it? So I, I liked it. But I think the thing that is different for me is I liked the movie. But like some other ones, I rooted for Esther. Well, that was a prerequisite to me having you watch Orphan. Oh, okay. Of that's fair I, I mean, we're going to root for the bad guy, of course. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's to, to me, <laughs> Orphan feels like if Chucky finally completed the ritual and got a human body. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. That's a, that's a good way to put it. <laughs> um, we have to cover something immediately, and we can do it live on the air. Are we going to give away the twist, or are we not going to? I think we shouldn't. I think you're right, actually. I really do. 
Um, but it's weird because there's Orphan first kill. This is a strange thing that in 2009, Orphan came out. Not many people seem to give a shit. I didn't know it had a cult following, but apparently it does. And so now in 2022, Orphan First Kill, a prequel, has just been released, which I have not seen because I don't have Paramount Plus, and I don't think it's worth getting Paramount Plus just to watch one movie. So, Which, the thing that, like, I'm, I'm sure it's interesting, but the thing to me for a prequel to something like that, of you know exactly how it ends. Like, it's... <laughs> yeah. Although, I'm not one to, to, to listen to spoilery kind of things, but in an inadvertent way, I kind of overheard from two people talking a little bit of what that film is about, and it sounds like they actually did a pretty good job of putting some twists into her history that might make you like it even more. So I think I'm going to, I know I'm going to watch it. I, I want to see it, but I kind of know a little bit about what the twist is and it's a pretty solid twist. So, so yeah, I'll check out orphan first kill any of our listeners that have seen it. If you want to shoot us an, an email telling us if you thought it was shit or if it was good or just in the middle, I'm open to hearing your opinion. So, but yeah, orphan 2009 written by Alex Mace directed by Oh boy, a gentleman whose name I'm going to butcher. Jaume Collet Sarah, J A U M E. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. I think I'll stick with uh, Mr. Sarah because I'm knowing I'm getting the last name right. <laughs> um, there's a weird thing with, with this gentleman. He has made two films that I always want to put on our unsung horror list. In addition to Orphan, he made the 2005 House of Wax, which I can't wait to talk about at some point because I think it is a very underrated film. And he also made The Shallows. Jungle Cruise. Oh. Oh, oh, all right, all right. <laughs> I said, you jerk. Disney's Jungle yeah. Cruise. He did make Jungle Cruise, which is not a bad film. But he made The Shallows. And I think The Shallows with Blake Lively, I think The Shallows is one of the coolest non-Jaws shark movies. I like Deep Blue Sea for camp. And I like The Shallows for tension. They are nowhere near the juggernaut that is Jaws, but they're both really good shark movies. I yeah. like them both. And I, I guess he's signed on to make, or he directed Black Adam, which isn't out yet. So. I would love maybe next like July to kick off the summer, we do a shark themed episode. Let's do it. We I do am. It. I don't know how you feel. I personally like 47 meters down. That's a good one too. There's a few, the reef is not a bad flick either. So Oh yeah, the reef I haven't seen in ages. Yeah, the reef's good. I mean, they all have the same situation of like, you know, how much can you do with a shark unless you're deep blue sea because then you're augmenting those sharks. Yeah. Um I mean, then it's like the project metal beast route of mm -hmm. But yeah, orphan, creepy kid. Let's get into this. Let's talk yeah. about orphan. So, I mean, it's a, a family that recently lost a child, so they are now going to be adopting into their current family. They already have a daughter, they already have a son, and so they end up going to an orphanage, and they are picking from all of the orphans, and the father ends up finding this young girl who is just painting and talking to him about uh, searching for the things that are missing and finding the love in life and all of this that kind of really connects with exactly what they're feeling so naturally they bring her home and hilarity ensues 
I think you're glossing over a couple of dark, ballsy themes that this film tackles right from the get-go. Vera Farmiga plays the wife, and Peter Sarsgaard, I always want to say Skarsgaard, like a scar, but it's Sarsgaard, he plays the husband. They have a lot of history in their relationship, and the film covers it. But she is a recovered alcoholic, and she also had... I want to say it was a stillbirth versus a miscarriage, I think. And they, they presented in the beginning in a really uh, kind of unsettling setup sequence. Um, and yeah. also, due to her drinking, she ended up inadvertently causing her younger daughter to be deaf. So those yeah. are some pretty heavy things to enter this with. So you got some trauma going on, and you've got a broken marriage that, that there's also some infidelity. There's a whole bunch of things in, in their relationship. So this is sort of the bandaid is we're going to adopt a child. Yeah. They, they both come into this already with ambition throughout the movie on each other of he cheated on her, but then because of her actions, um, I think it was, she ended up like drinking and she was drunk. And then the other daughter ended up breaking through the ice or falling in the pond or something like that. Um, yeah. And that's how she ended up deaf. So it's already kind of a very strained family relationship here. And then introducing the other child, the other child immediately kind of, in this case, Esther, the, the orphan, the titular orphan, ends up latching on to their other daughter, Max. And Max is following along with Esther and learning from Esther. And they're kind of buddy-buddy. And then the other son is... He's not having her from he is not the, the get-go. But Esther's, she's crafty. She, she learns sign language. You know, she, she, she knows how to manipulate. I mean, they, they make it clear from the beginning that she can manipulate. And really, Isabel Furman, who I think was 12, I could be off by a year. I have to give this girl credit. Like, she is the best performance in the movie. She has to be, or the movie, I think, would have no, no real replay value. But she plays that shit to the hilt. And it's a very nuanced, well-done performance. I, I really dug her. I don't know if you did, but I, I thought oh, she was great. She was great. Yeah, a, th- a thousand percent. Especially for a performance from someone her age at the time. I think it's terrific. Just because it's it's being able to play all of the, the vulnerable child scenes from there. But also the psychotic intensity when it comes time for her to kind of flip that switch. You have a piano? Yeah. You'd like to learn how to play? I would love to. If I find out that you're lying, I'll cut your hairless little prick off before you even figure out what it's for. Do you understand me? And I think does a perfect job throughout this movie. Uh, it's definitely the, the shining star of the entire thing. That I think without her, it wouldn't necessarily work as well. Yeah. I mean, there were several reasons that I, I asked you to invest the two hours because it is, it's a little long and it probably could have been trimmed down a few minutes, but, um, (laughs) we have that problem too. Uh, yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, but there were, there were a couple factors that like made me kind of push you wanting to watch this. One of them was that I know, like me, you are a sucker for wintertime horror and this is set in winter. So there's that part that like pulled me in to begin with. I also think once again, that uh, Isabel Furman does a great job. I absolutely adore 
an actress who has the coolest actress name in the history of film, the one and only CCH Pounder. This woman's name is CCH Pounder. It's such an awesome name. And she's such a great character actress. She she was in Psycho 4, The End of Days, Demon Knight, Mississippi Burning. Like, everything about her is just awesome. And she plays one of the few outside-of-the-family characters that are in this movie. She's the, the nun from the orphanage that uh, kind of sets the family up. And she, as always, brings a, a lot of, uh, of believability to her role. So that helps. I also thought that this movie... It has shortcomings, for sure, but it was sort of nice to see an R-rated, like, evil kid movie that wasn't afraid to do some things that are are not the norm. I mean, there are children that are put into peril beyond the the constructed peril that isn't really that dangerous. She threatens one of the kids in this movie in an extremely threatening way, and the violence is it it builds in a tension way and there is not a lot of actual violence but when it happens i think it is very grounded and it's very vicious it has a uh way back when we talked i think it was we were talking about our slasher uh proto slasher episode we both noticed that we use the term mean-spirited way too much in like one review <laughs> but man orphan is a mean-spirited it fucking pulls. movie no like, punches it really is um and I had to give the movie credit for that. Like it's, I don't think it's like a classic, but it's one of the better evil kid movies in the entire history of evil kid movies. Like it, it's really good. I, I like it. It's, I, I don't know how much I can give away without spoiling the experience for people, but there's going to be moments where you're, you're like, if you're with people, you'll kind of glance at them because there's some stuff that borderlines on like seduction. And things like that that I'm I don't want to spoil, but they're not they're they're ballsy moves to make in a movie. And I know that uh, Tim and I were talking about Vera Farmiga off camera, and I, I don't know I I like her as an actress. I guess Tim did bring up a valid point that she does sort of play a lot of the same character. I don't really know if that's her range or if that's um, casting directors looking for that from her the same way Al Pacino tends to, in his later years, play the Al Pacino type of character. I'm just a sucker for her from like, I love her as Mrs. Bates. I think she's excellent and she carries that show for me. And I also really like her even in films that I think are flawed, but I think she's good. I think she's very good in The Departed. She's extremely good in in another underrated film called Running Scared. But I guess you're right, Tim. She kind of plays her the same. Running Scared. Yeah, she's good, man. I, I like her. I I really like her, and she sells me in this. Like the dynamic between when you think about like the Baba Duke, which is a very different film, but the dynamic between the son and the mother in the Baba Duke. There's a similar, like, I'm fed up. I'm trying to be a good mom, but I'm fed up. And that doesn't always work in movies. But I really like the dynamic between Esther and the mom in this movie. Because it turns into a mom having to do shit that a mom should never want to do. But she's aware, as the movie progresses, she's the one that is aware of of what Esther is. And because of her past breakdowns and her alcoholism, no one really believes her. 
And it worked for me. That part of it worked for me. Again, it's not a perfect movie, but I think it's a really solid, you know, pop some popcorn and man, there's a fucking twist that is a good one. It's a good twist. I I like the twist. Which the the thing, um, I watched this with my fiance. We were taking a look at it. And the twist, to me, is a good twist, but also does not affect anything in the movie in terms of like what's happening. Right. Um, Cause it's like, Oh, that's an interesting twist, but it doesn't end up kind of changing how the movie's going to end. It's just kind of like a, an added reveal of other yeah. stuff. Unlike, un- unlike a film like the usual suspects or the sixth sense or maybe seven. I mean, seven still has a rewatchability cause it's such a well crafted film. Yeah. But once you know the end of The Sixth Sense, I mean, you know, like, I, I'm not dying to rewatch it, um, but you're right. This doesn't, it doesn't make you immediately go back and, like, let me pick all this apart and see all the plot holes. It, it's a bit far-fetched. You know, you have to make a certain leap to be down with it. E- evidently, it's based but it, on a true story. Well, yeah. Okay. Because we, all right. <laughs> I had yeah. a couple of notes I was going to mention that I've now altered the way I'm going to mention them because we both decided not to spoil the twist. So with that in mind, after you all watch orphan, after you watch orphan, grab a pen. I'm going to, or get your phone out. I'm going to give you a second after you watch the film, but not before go on to Google and type in the name, Barbara Sklova. And I'm going to spell it for you because it's spelt really wacky. It's B-A-R-B-O-R-A, not Barbara with an extra A, it's Barbara with an O. B-A-R-B-O-R-A, S-K-L-O-V-A. And then maybe add Norway to that. The true story that this is loosely based on takes place in Norway, and that is the person's name. And I can't give you any more info or don't spoil it. But after you watch the movie, check that out and your jaw is probably going to drop. It's kind of nuts. And then there is also a case of a similar situation that happened somewhere in middle America, I think Indiana or something like that. But it actually, it's often cited as the true story that Orphan was based on, but it's incorrect because this true story happened seven or eight years after the movie came out. But it is an extremely similar situation to what happens in Orphan. So there you have it. That's like that. That those are my thoughts on Orphan. Tim, I'm yeah. glad you enjoyed it. It it's a cool movie to add to the Killer Kid canon. Yeah, and now I'm I'm interested to see First Kill. I'll definitely sit down and give it a shot. Yeah, um, we'll check it out. It's kind of ludicrous what they're trying to pull off, which is Isabel Furman. I mean, 2009. She's now like I don't know tw- what like she's I think she, 25 now. And she's so even if they recorded this a couple of years ago, <laughs> yeah. it's like she's 23, but she's playing Esther, uh, several years back. It's not like they're going back to where she was like, like five, it's but, like a wet, hot summer but, scenario. But, yeah. Right. But they're still having, like they're having Isabel Furman play her and they're not doing any CGI de-aging. They're, they're kind of doing it in a more Lord of the Rings fashion where they're having actors stand taller than her. And um, I don't know, like I watched the trailer and you know that she's not a little girl, but 
I don't know. She's a pretty solid actress. So I feel like if they shoot it correctly and they must use doubles at some point, you know, having her walk around, maybe like if she's walking from behind with a person, um, they must have to do some trickery like that. <laughs> yeah, um, so she's not like uh, a five, to. 11, nine year old. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't make sense. But yeah, I'm, I'm actually really stoked to watch uh, First Kill just because I've heard it's good. And I've also heard that keeping in the tradition of Orphan, supposedly Orphan First Kill does some pretty like edgy, fucked up things. Like some things that that most people, especially in this day and age, might find uh, problematic is the best buzzword I can come up with. But they sort of go for the gusto and they do it. So I, I want to see it for that reason. But yeah, that's Orphan. That's as close as we're going to get to lying and bringing a slasher back in. We, we haven't really done any slashers since those, those little one-offs. Um, so what is, what's our wrap-up, Tim? What are, what are we going to bring this sucker home on? What's, what's so, the, the last film? The Last Unsung is a movie that I have been championing for many years since it came out in 2016 that a lot of the the other even other like podcasters even other kind of critics and horror critics that i enjoy and respect have rated it very poorly specifically saying this film is just a mishmash of films i like better it is 2016's the void haven't you ever wished to save someone beyond saving no matter what the cost this is uncharted territory. The body has to adjust, of course. We weren't built for this kind of thing. You'd be surprised at the things you find when you go looking. There is something calling them all here. What if those people get in here? What are we supposed to do? You saw it? What was that? I don't disagree that it is a film that pulls it's like a greatest hits of a bunch of other movies I grew up on and other movies I love but I feel like that doesn't make this a bad movie I think it's just hey if I had a bunch of money and I had a chance of making a movie I would love to be able to do a movie that pulls together all of my favorite kind of themes and styles and ideas and things like that from a bunch of different things I grew up on and that's what you end up with in the void. I agree with you. And I have a feeling that some of the backlash this movie got might have been because of the wording that a lot of the people championing it were using. You're setting up a situation when you start telling people you know, it's like it's like a like a John Carpenter movie that that never was, or or it's like Cronenberg, or it's the best movie about like demonic -y stuff like in, in beings since like Hellraiser. When people start saying those things, 
I think it, it, it gets the hackles of, of all the old school fans and, and they want to shit on it. You know, like there's no way that's as good as like John Carpenter's the thing. And few things are, and the void is not as good as those films, but the void was also made in a very different way than those yeah. films were made. That has to be taken into consideration. The thing that's odd to me is the fact that I don't know if you're familiar with the the other movies. Um, so Jeremy Gillespie and Stephen Kostansky are the two who ended up making this. That's what they I was going to ask. Both you. <laughs> work with Astron 6, or they are part of Astron 6, which is a film company that does a lot of comedy horror. Yeah, like, um, like Canadian comedy horror. Yeah, it's like Father's Day, Manborg, The Editor. I personally am not a fan of like Manborg and Father's Day. The editor I found amusing. It's very like a a parody of those, uh, like the Italian horror kind of deal. It's Um, it's a giallo parody. Yeah. And it's actually, there's a lot of merit in the editor, but it's, I think it's too much of a good thing. It, It like wears out its welcome if you tighten that film up and cut like a half hour out of it, it's way longer than than a parody of Giallo films should be. It's as long as some of the most tedious Giallo films. And it just where it, it's almost there. And these two guys, I have to say that quite often things they're involved with have a lot of good in them, but they're not all there. I'm not a huge fan of like Manborg Father's Day. I did like the the editor, but if you're familiar with all of their films through that of kind of the very parody comedy horror angle, the void is a much different kind of monster we're dealing with here of it's takes itself seriously. It has a lot of those fun elements from all of these different pieces, but it ends up not having any of it as a joke. I mean, here and there, there might be a couple things that are, funny but it's more the the whole thing is uh a cop ending up taking somebody in and they end up at the the hospital and as they're at the hospital all of this stuff starts going on a cult arrives outside and kind of prevents them from leaving and all of a sudden somebody goes crazy in the hospital and kills somebody else then all of a sudden there's creatures at the hospital and all of this stuff starts going haywire that the the cop or other characters, while they're stressed out, might make a, a comment or something that might be amusing, but at no point does this film end up treading into the territory that they did with their other ones for the rest of like the Astron 6 films from there. It doesn't play into, now let's be hokey because we can't pull this off. It crazily tries to pull off quite a bit. Like It tries to pull off so much that you can't help but admire what they're trying to pull off. Um, that, that's how I felt watching it. Which, like we said, is even though it definitely wears its influences on its sleeve of, yes, there's bits of Prince of Darkness in this movie. There's bits of Lord of Illusions in this movie. There's bits of Hellraiser. There's even, I feel like, bits of um, Gareth Evans segment in VHS2, Safe Haven. Yeah. Like, there, yeah. there's a bit of There's a ton of influences. In you got Event Horizon. There's some stuff yeah. like that. There's some... In it, like inescapable comparisons to like Cenobite type of stuff from Hellraiser. I mean, you could tell that they dig HP Lovecraft a lot. They also probably love Dungeons and Dragons and they also love, uh, you know, so many influences that we all love. So yeah. you feel that passion, you feel that let's make this so cool. 
And you also know that they're doing it on pennies. There's no way to hide that. They hide it pretty well, considering. But you you can feel that this is when people use those terms like watershed or grassroots. You can feel that in it. You kind of know while you're watching it that whoever was doing craft services might have also been painting sets. Like you could get that family feeling when you watch this movie, which I think is probably a good thing in the end. Yeah, because I guess a majority of either the the movie itself for funding or at least the effects side of things ended up coming from like crowdsourcing. Yeah. Which is a nice thing in terms of being able to maintain your creative control. But I know it, it has to be a tough thing in terms of we will be able to afford the extent of whatever the kindness in people's hearts are for this project or the belief that other people have in us. So I don't know how it originally went as far as the that crowdfunding for it. So like anybody that might have known them from other work right, might have known them from like Astron 6, which if even though they're from Astron 6, it's not an Astron 6 movie. So it's OK, I'm going to put money into a project, even though I know that this is not going to be the same kind of project that I know you for from your other stuff. So I think overall it definitely worked in their favor of being able to do what they wanted with this because i don't know if maybe studio notes might have pointed them in a much different direction of that's too much like this movie that's too much like that movie don't do that i was going to mention what i'm going to say towards the end of this review on the void but i think i'll mention it now because it really it's harmonious with what you're talking about if you know the backstory to how this film came about, you can learn that backstory by supporting them and buying The Void on on physical media, and you can watch the really cool documentaries about the creation of it. I can't freaking believe this film got made when I learned how it went about. You you had two guys, um, Jeremy Gillespie and Stephen Katansky, Katansky handled the brunt of of coordinating and doing a lot of the effects, which were done in a in a very, very practical way, like super practical. This film, they shot a very short trailer's worth of footage. And based on that, they got this crowdfunding thing going and they got some some money in place. This film almost got made two or three times. And I mean to the point where they were shooting the next day. And the first time the major money backer producer freaking died the day before they were starting shooting. So that just put a full stop on everything, but they were still bleeding money because the location that they secured was, um, was a rundown school. Uh, it was some sort of elementary school in somewhere in Canada. So they had everything there. Like they were getting ready to film. And then this happened. Then they, the the producer managed to get another financer and that killed a couple of weeks out of their production. And then that fell through. I can't believe this. Like I was, I was watching this documentary and as someone who worked in film in certain capacities, I felt for them and I wasn't even in it. I'm just watching the documentary about it. So they were able to get this going a third time. I think it was in such a way that they cut their schedule. They they filmed this thing. 
I think it was like a third of the time that they had allotted to shoot it. So when you take that into account, the fact that these poor guys were going through the script and just red sharpying out with a Sharpie entire sequences that they wanted to do. It's crazy that they even put what they got on screen together. Um, So that I, I watched the movie once without knowing that. And then I watched the movie a second time. And after it, I was like, let me go and watch these documentaries about how it was made. I like the flick for what it is, but I have a much greater appreciation for what it could have been. It could have been a complete and total disaster. And this crew pulled off some stuff that would be impressive with twice the time and twice the money. So we didn't really even talk about what the movie is. It, it it's, it's a bunch of people being holed up eventually, being directed into a hospital in a small town. And some really dark existential threats start occurring. And Tim had mentioned cult people. There's a whole group of people that you don't know who they are, but they're wearing these like white shrouds with this black triangle, a very graphic black triangle on the front. Uh, and they're holding knives. And whenever people try to leave this hospital, it's kind of similar to the ruins in that one aspect. When they try to Actually, leave, yeah. they're going to get stabbed to death. And when they go back inside, there's all sorts of weird body horror shit going on inside. Yeah, honestly, I'd rather get stabbed. Yeah, I I, I agree with you. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know. How much of the story should we cover, Tim? I mean, I feel like there's a lot of big twists. Well, there's kind of one major twist to the story. There's scenes in this movie that go into all of these creature effects and this kind of almost like a, a hellscape down in the bottom of the hospital and all of this stuff. Yeah, the hospital becomes a character as the yeah. movie progresses. That it's like the, I mean, it's almost kind of like the upside down of you have all of this bleeding over into the existing world of now all of a sudden there's creatures down there and now all of a sudden everything is that very dour grays and you have your like the neon lights and things like that casting these airy glows on everything down there as they're trying to make their way through down to the very bottom of the basement for this hospital. And I think the entire thing ends up slowly building on itself of it gets bleaker over time and gets crazier over time. But even knowing what you said of there's entire scenes, they just sharpied out because it's like an $83,000 budget. We don't do this. We can't do that. And I think it still holds up. It's all coherent and all of it ends up fitting together that it's like, there's not any point where I would say, oh, there definitely seemed like there's something missing here. I have no idea what's going on. But that's some sometimes with independent film. I mean, it isn't making an excuse for it, but it's this thing where sometimes knowing a little bit of the backstory, it helps you understand a few of the rough spots because this film, it, it's it's shooting, it, it's casting such a broad net and it's playing in a, in a corner of horror that usually would require a lot of money because, because you're doing something very big and they managed to pull off a lot of those big things in a way that feels like Tim said, 
not like stuff's missing, but there are a couple of threads in, in certain narrative corners I wished it went deeper into. Oh, yeah. But then when you watch that behind the scenes stuff, you're like, oh, I get it. If I was on this production about ready to rip my own face off because of all of the hardships that were thrown at them. This isn't my face. As much as I want a little more, these are the things that could be jettisoned in a um, in a DEFCON 5 situation of like, something's got to go, this can go because this has yeah. to stay. And it, it balances it out. So in this sequence, we're seeing little hints of a pulsing meat blob that... Uh, he had a bigger role in the movie in a deleted scene. But we just love the effect so much that uh, we kind of dropped it into these vision sequences. And it works as a bit of like kind of abstract nonsense. Little filmmaker tip. If you don't have any money, don't do effects in your movie. <laughs> and I, I have to say that even, even with all of the good and even with the lower budget, there are a couple unfortunate things that, that kind of bother me. And one of those things is I know they weren't able to afford Oscar winning talent. You know, there is Art Hingle who Tim and I both love. He's a character actor that was in the 78 Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and he was also in our beloved Black Christmas, and he's in The Brood. He's a great Canadian character actor. He's in it, and he does a great job with his small role. I also think Kathleen Monroe, who I'm pretty sure is playing the lead female, she sold me 110%. She's really good. Really good actress. My problem... And it's not a major problem. Aaron Poole plays the lead and he has a lot to do. There's no doubt that this man has a lot to do, but he didn't sell me a hundred percent. There are times that I felt he was overacting. It's not a lot, but I felt like that dude needed to be a standout linchpin character. And he really does do an okay job. I just think that some of the supporting characters do an exemplary job, and that kind of makes him stand out a little to me in certain scenes. And for the love of God, Tim, I don't want to split hairs because that's such a dick move. <laughs> his hairstyle, his haircut in this film, it bothered the shit out of me from the opening frame to the end frame. Put this just down. Look at me! Because it is not a hairstyle that a local sheriff should have. It also is a very problematic hairstyle for the amount of action that he, that this actor is put in. There are so many scenes where his hair comes like down in front of his face, but then in the very next moment, it's pulled back behind his ear. It creates a continuity error that they wouldn't have had if they gave him a shorter hairstyle. And there's also a few scenes he kind of, some actors, they have different things that they do, little little nuances, and he kind of hair acts a little bit. He does a lot of like, I'm, I'm moving my hair, and there's scenes where he gets like jostled and thrown around where the hairstyle pops up in a way that looks comedic, <laughs> but it looks comedic in a scene that's not comedic, and and I thought it was just me, but the second time I watched this movie, I watched it with Aaron, and Midway through the film, Aaron says to me, this guy has the dirtiest hair and it's distracting me. And I looked at her and was like, thank God you said something because I thought it was just me. 
But once again, Tim, I am literally splitting hairs. It's It was a choice they made that maybe when they watched the movie, maybe they saw it and were like, oh, wow, that kind of creates a lot of continuity problems. It isn't jarring. It's just this thing that like, it kind of irked me a little in addition to some of his performance. And it's really because Ellen Wong and this guy, Mick Bicegrove, I think his name is, they're all like side characters and they're really solid. They're, they're like really good actors. Yeah. But this happens. This happens in low budget movies, you know? Yeah, because at one point, the there's two characters that come in, the the father and a son that have been kind of running around and dealing with all of these crazy happenings in the night. And they end up at the hospital as well. But the the son who um, Mick or Mike Beiskoff, who plays Simon, I think he does for being a character who's mute throughout the film. And he's so um, good in it. He, he's really like, good. Just his eyes and the way he like his mouth moves as he's just like looking at things. I think he does such a great understated performance the entire time. His that, dad, I did not think was as strong. Yeah, I think it I, was, I, I did. Well, I think that's the problem is even though all of the other roles aren't necessarily doing a poor job, when you have a couple shining ones here and there, like you said, like Kathleen Monroe as she's excellent. She's really good. And Ellen Wong is really good too. She, she plays a nurse who doesn't have a ton of scenes, but like there's those little moments in the beginning, Tim, before dark stuff starts happening, when it's just like, you're just seeing like the daily life. And she brings like, she brings a, a swagger and a personality to her character with, with the lines that are in there, but she yeah. adds like her own, I don't know, what would you call it? She adds like a personal stamp on it. Yeah, like there's a little bit of like an, an edge to her character that ends up making it fun of she's just sitting there while a guy's just yeah. in the hospital bed and she's just flipping through a book, kind of terrorizing him. You know, statistically, you're more likely to die in a hospital than anywhere else. Cool. Well, I could give you a catheter. That could be fun. Are you even a nurse? I am in training. That's so cool. I'm just going to go to sleep, okay? I want everyone to know that Aaron Poole, as the lead, he really is not bad. Like, there are so many independent horror films where I think the acting is shit. Like, it's just bad, and it pulls you out of the movie. This guy is not bad. It's just that he's almost there. And I think that character requires someone that really has a range. And this guy has a range. It's just not certain moments he doesn't sell me as much as I want him to. And that's all. I mean, you can't always have, you know, like Winter's Bone, where the debut performance of of Jennifer Lawrence, like she's so phenomenal in Winter's Bone. But yeah, man, I... uh. I, I'm a fan of the of the void. I think it's really cool, and I think it's a better film than what Steven went on to do, which is Psycho Goreman. You can see, you can see that the effects person. You can see it's the same person doing the effects because there are some things. There's some things in the void that work beautifully, and there's also some things in the void that are so audacious that I don't know how anyone could think they could have pulled it off and they didn't necessarily nail it, but they came close enough to keep this 
this like Lovecraft gorehound lover guy, me watching it, they, they impressed me. I was like, you know what? This is really cool. There is a sequence where a person births a creature and that creature is dragging them around. They're dragging the body of the mother around on a giant umbilical cord. And that's one of those instances where I kept squinting and trying to see it where I'm like, this looks so cool. Why can't I see it? And there's a sequence where it gets set on fire that I thought was a little lacking. And I was like, man, this creature's so cool. Like, I want to see more of it. Then I watched the behind the scenes. They wanted to do a full burn on that creature, like cover it in gasoline and light it up. But they couldn't do it because they literally had to be out of the establishment in a matter of hours. And they knew that if they tried to create a full bodysuit fire burn that they wouldn't be able to shoot the other scenes they needed. So what they chose to do was bring in a fire bar, which is a classic way of like kind of having fire in front of the camera. But and it, if it's shot well, it can look like it, the creature's burning. And I have to say it's serviceable. It works, but it's like, it hurts when you know they intended to set yeah. it on fire, you know? So again, um, people that like, creature features and people that like things that are like Lovecraftian or Clive Barker kind of vibe. This movie fucking delivers. It delivers what five independent horror movies would give you in one movie. It's hard to hate on it. It really is. I, I, I think it's an awesome inclusion to this unsung horror. So. so I think as far as the the closing movie, for everybody that says this movie in a negative way is just an amalgamation of a bunch of other better movies, there's a bunch of movies I like. For 84 minutes, you can cram all of them into one and just watch this. So it's still on Shutter. Go check it out. It's 2016's The Void. I think that's an eclectic mix, but I think it's something for everybody in there. And I think hopefully everybody will watch all of them because they're all good across the board yeah we've given you guys six very different films just like unsung volume one except i think we were crazy and we did 10 because it was our first like full-length episode <laughs> we, we, yeah we would never do that again i remember we were we were here recording it was like 3 20 a.m and we were like i think we we're still record like finishing yeah. that up but i know that tim and myself share so much love for the same sort of like like uh, unearthed sort of horror movies. And our list, when we, when we start putting together unsung stuff, we have enough movies for like 10 episodes of unsung horror. And everyone loved the first one so much that I'm kind of excited to eventually, maybe, maybe seven or eight episodes from now, we will do an unsung three. Because in our talk of these six movies, we actually inadvertently mentioned a few of the movies <laughs> that we wanted to put on a list. So that'll that'll be coming soon. And now, your quote for the week. Now, as of this moment, as far as we're concerned, we are 50k behind enemy lines. Now, if we do happen to make a contact, I expect nothing less than gratuitous violence from the lot of you. Because we're firing blanks, it doesn't mean we have to be thinking nice thoughts. So you remember, you put the fire down, right? You get stuck in and you kick their fucking teeth out. Or I guarantee you, Joe, they will be having your bollocks for breakfast, sunshine. Hard-boiled or fried, Sarge. Scrambled. But yeah, you guys are amazing. And we keep getting uh, written reviews 
which is so wonderful. You love to see them. That people take the time to write a review. It's It's awesome. It's weird, isn't it? That it's like seeing nice things being said and then knowing those nice things are being said about you. Yeah. Uh, When we started Don't Open This Podcast, we were were afraid that we'd be screaming into the void and that no one would be listening. (laughs) And now we're screaming about the void. Yeah, we're we're past 10 episodes and we're we're covering the void. It's it's a really awesome (laughs) thing. Um so there's our usuals. You can you can follow us. Um you can write to us. We have our Twitter, which is Don't Open This Pod. And then we've got our personal Instagrams of mine is Falsigno Art and Tim's is Mr. Time. And then we've got our Don't Open This Podcast, uh, which is just Don't Open This Podcast. That's the Instagram. And you had talked about this last time, the whole umbrella thing that we're doing. So plug that because people should follow that too. Yeah. So all of this is kind of part of the our screen refresh network. So I run a couple other shows that originally um, my show Screen Refresh, where a couple of other helps I, we kind of go through 80s and 90s movies and shows and games we grew up on. And then we have another show, Rule of Thirds, where we kind of cover specific top three lists of different topics. And then that kind of, we had a Halloween episode, which if you haven't listened to the Halloween special for Screen Refresh, it's essentially the backdoor pilot that led us into Don't Open This Podcast. So at this point, we have kind of a something coming out pretty much every week throughout the month, uh, various shows. And we just created a, a Discord server. So for anybody that's on Discord or is interested in Discord, it's just kind of an online community we created. So this way, everybody has somebody to talk to as far as I just saw nope and i have nobody to discuss nope with well that's great come on to the discord server there's something for everybody whether it's playing games whether it's talking movies whether it's talking shows and comics music so on um we figured the whole thing we started this kind of crazy idea so we can stay in touch with friends and talk about the things we love not everybody has that luxury so borrow our friends and join the fun yeah and take a moment to um to send us an email because we now have Four different emails from different listeners that have said they wanted a horror comedy episode. So I feel like if we get a couple more of those, that means like we should definitely do a horror comedy episode, which we're going to do at some point, you know. But really, if we get enough feedback that like people want a certain thing, we're going to totally do an episode on it because we want you guys to enjoy listening to it. So obviously our Stranger Things resonated with a lot of people. So we might do like a... I don't know, a horror TV, like a best of horror, horror, like there's some series that a lot of people love that got canceled, which sucks. And there's some that you might not have even heard of. So we'll probably do that at some point too. Yeah. So shoot that over to don't open this podcast at gmail.com and we'll take a look. And if you just want to shoot us a message, shoot us a question, we'll answer on air, let us know. And you could also write us a review and leave what you would like us to cover in that review. That does two things at once. And we appreciate them both. Raw efficiency is what we're all about here. (laughs) All about efficiency. (laughs) So thank you again. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye.